Oh, there we go. Is that, that's good? Great. All right. Good morning. Uh, my name is Robert Gonzalez, and I am a native of California, born in Vacaville, but left shortly after my conversion, age 22, to go out east to a Bible college. I met my wife there, and we got married. We had five children, and uh, then at the age of 50, I came back to California, the place of my birth, to be close to my parents and to be part of IBC. Uh, so it's, it's a great pleasure and privilege to be here. I send you greetings from my family. My wife wishes she could be here with me, but she had to play piano at IBC this morning. And I was able to bring one of my, my children who are still living. We have two boys still living with us, Calvin. Uh, I won't have him stand up and embarrass him, but he's in the back. Uh, but anyway, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, this morning, uh, I'd like to invite you to turn to the epistle to Jude. Uh, our epistle of Jude, that is. Um, it's the almost the last book in our New Testament. It's just before the book of the Revelation, the epistle of Jude. I, I want this morning to share with you an excerpt from a seminar that I recently taught in the Dominican Republic. Um, RBS offered in the mid-2000s a, a training program, theological training program, to uh, many young men there in the Dominican Republic, and uh, one of the fruits of that program is that a seminary started in 2008. And that seminary invites uh, young men and young women from all over Latin America to come for about 10 months. And during those 10 months, they spend half their time in intensive theological training. And the other half of the time, they, they spend serving in the church down there in Santiago, Dominican Republic. And so... Uh, Usually every year, either I or one of the other board members of RBS will go down there, we'll teach uh, a seminar or a module to the students, and then we participate in their graduation ceremony. Since 2008, uh, Grace Ministerial Academy there in the Dominican has graduated over 200 students. And so it's been uh, quite a joy to participate in that. Uh, the main theme of, of the seminar that I taught last month was entitled Finding Christ in the Old Testament. And I began that series of lectures by telling the students uh, very sincerely how much I enjoyed being in the Dominican Republic. And I always enjoy my visits there. I enjoy the fellowship I have with the people of God there. I enjoy uh, getting to interact with Pastor Juan Perez. Um, I enjoy teaching lectures to the students. I enjoy the opportunities to practice my Spanish, which isn't really that good. Um, and I enjoy spending time at the playa, which is the beach. All right. And by the way, don't you know that the, the, the things that have happened at that one beach area in the Dominican really aren't happening all over. Okay. So I know sometimes people say, oh, you're going to the Dominican, watch out, you know. Uh, but uh, it's really not like that all over the the island. The people are very hospitable. Uh, it's always a great time to be down there. But I had to make a confession to the students, and I'd only been there for about three days. And I told them right off the bat, being very honest and candid, that I was homesick, uh, that I missed being back in California. And the reason for that is that my wife was not with me. Sometimes I'm able to bring Becky to the DR. And in fact, this time we had planned for her to go with me. We were going to spend some time on the beach, and um, we were really looking forward to spending time with the pastor and his wife. However, uh, Becky's trying to get certified in California to be a teacher. She's been a teacher's assistant for several years, and she really wants to be a teacher. So she had to take some summer school classes, and therefore we had to cancel the plans for her to go to the DR with me. And so as a result, even though there was one sense in which I wanted to be there, there was another sense in which I missed home. I missed being with my wife. Now, I suspect that's precisely how you and I feel sometimes when we're reading our Old Testaments. If we're Christians, we love the Old Testament because the Old Testament is part of our Bible, and the entire Bible is God-breathed and profitable for our salvation and sanctification. Many of us love 
the Old Testament stories, the narratives. We identify with many of the Old Testament characters. And some of the Old Testament promises are very precious to us. We've even memorized them or we have them on placards in our, in our homes. Nevertheless, if we spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, we find that sometimes our hearts grow homesick for the New Testament scriptures. And I think one of the main reasons for that is that in the New Testament, we find Jesus, our Savior. And we want to be with Christ. And I think that one of the reasons why Christians don't spend much time in their Old Testaments is because they don't believe they find Jesus in the Old Testament. That's what I told those students. I want you to imagine this morning with me, though, that my recent trip to the Dominican was a little bit different. Okay? Imagine it had a twist that I didn't expect. Imagine my wife found out that her summer school classes were canceled, but she didn't tell me. Imagine I went down there and I opened the lecture and told the students that, that, that I was homesick. And imagine at that point that Pastor Juan Perez stood up and he says, Dr. Gonzalez, can you wait for a minute? And then he turned his head and he cried out with a loud voice, enter the room. The door opens. My wife comes walking right in the room. She says, surprise, honey. I'm here. You don't have to be homesick. I get to spend these days with you in the Dominican Republic. I can tell you if that would have happened, I'd probably still be there this morning on the beach with my wife. Well, the good news I have for us this morning, friends, is that you and I do not need to feel homesick when we're reading our Old Testaments. The reason being is that we can find Jesus in the Old Testament. He's there. Now, that may not surprise some of you, but it may surprise some of you. Some of you may say, well, I... Boy, I don't know. I mean, I've been having my devotions and Genesis and, and Exodus and Leviticus and so on and so forth, and I just haven't seen Christ there. Well, I hope this morning, by the end of our time, the surprise will become a pleasant surprise, a welcomed surprise. In a sense, though, in light of the passage we just read, it, it shouldn't be a surprise, should it? In fact, do you remember in the Gospels, Jesus scolded the Jewish leaders. They claimed to believe the Jewish scriptures were the word of God. And they claimed that those scriptures promised a Messiah, and yet they would not believe in Jesus. Jesus says to them, if you believe Moses, you would believe in me because Moses wrote about me. Notice there, he didn't say Isaiah wrote about me. He didn't just say, David wrote about me. He said, Moses. All the way back in the first five books of our Old Testament scriptures, Jesus says, I'm there. Moses wrote about me. Even his disciples had a hard time seeing this. Uh, as we saw in the reading this morning, Jesus appears to two of them on the road to Emmaus, and he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interprets to them in all the scriptures, listen to this, the things concerning himself. That was the title of his Bible study. The things concerning me. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to be there with those two men for that Bible study? I mean, oftentimes I think to myself, boy, I wish they had uh, video and audio technology back then because I would love for somebody to have recorded that on an MP3 so that I could listen in. Now, this morning, my goal is not to try to reproduce uh, the study that Jesus provided for his disciples on the road to Emmaus. I mean, some of that would just be conjecture. I suspect Jesus would have expounded some of the Old Testament prophecies about him. Maybe Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that talks about the seed of Abraham. Or perhaps Psalm 2, where God sets his son upon the holy hill. Or maybe Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. 
Maybe Jesus explained some of the Old Testament types and shadows that foreshadow his work. Maybe he talked about how the, the priesthood and the tabernacle and the sacrifice point forward to him. And of course, we could have a great time studying some of those Old Testament prophecies and types. This morning, though, I want to look at something with you that I think is perhaps even more remarkable. It's a revelation of Christ in the Old Testament that is sometimes neglected, underappreciated. What I want to point out this morning is that Jesus is not only promised in the Old Testament prophecies, He's not only patterned in the Old Testament types, but Jesus is actually present in the Old Testament stories. In fact, I would suggest that Jesus is the main character of the entire Old Testament story. And so, as was noted, the title of my message this morning is this, Close Encounters of the Messianic Kind... Appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. Okay. The main text for our studies found in the Epistle of Jude. And in this brief letter, it's only one chapter. The half brother of the Lord Jesus Christ makes a remarkable statement in verse five. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Is that the the main version that you guys are accustomed to? Okay, good. ESV. Jude says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Have you seen that before? Some of you say, I've never seen that before, and maybe it's because most English versions of the Bible follow a certain set of Greek manuscripts that use the Greek term kurios, which is translated Lord. So most English Bibles just translate the verse that the Lord is the one who saved the people out of Egypt and destroyed those in the wilderness. But this reading here says Jesus. In fact, that's the best reading in terms of the manuscript evidence that we have. Jesus. It turns out that the Latin Vulgate has that reading, which is a very old version. It reads Jesus as well, as do many of the early church fathers who quote this passage. They use Jesus. Okay, that raises the question, why is it then that most English versions today translate it as Lord rather than Jesus? Well, the main reasons that Bible scholars or commentators give is to them it seems awkward to speak of Jesus as being actually present in the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. I mean, that seems to get Jesus in the wrong place on the Bible's chronology line. When I was in the Dominican, I asked the students, who was the famous Italian explorer that founded the Dominican Republic? If I asked you that question, what would you say? Christopher Columbus, right? Who sailed the ocean blue in 1492. All right? But, but if, if you're a purist, you'd say, wait a minute now. The Dominican Republic was technically founded in 1844. Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. So there's an anachronism. There's a placing a person on the wrong place on the chronological timeline. Do you, do you see the point? Okay? So Christopher wasn't around. And, and in the same way, scholars say, wait a minute, Jesus wasn't around in the Exodus or the wilderness wanderings. And so, you know, we have to ask the question, why would Jude say Jesus was there at the Exodus? Jesus was present in the wilderness wanderings. Is there any evidence in the Bible that Jesus was really there? And this morning I want to say, yes, there is. We don't have time to look at all that evidence. There's a lot of it. But I just want to look at several Old Testament passages. The first one I'll turn you to is Exodus chapter 3. So I want you to put on your thinking caps. 
young people, you too, take notes and then quiz your parents and make sure your parents paid attention this morning, okay? When you get home this afternoon, mom and dad, we have a quiz for you. We want to make sure that you paid attention. And so we're going to quiz you on these different passages of Scripture. Jude, or, or rather, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3. Let me just give you a little bit of the background of this passage before we actually read it. So in this passage, Moses is, is tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, uh, in the wilderness. And he's near Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. And as he's tending the flocks, he sees a, a, a miraculous sight on the side of the mountain. He sees a bush burning that's not consumed. And so he turns aside to see this. In verse 1, we say Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the Notice this, verse 2, And the angel of the Lord, and you guys know that when the Lord is in capitals, it's referring to God's special name, his covenant name, Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because they're taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Let's skip over really quickly to verse 13. Moses says to God there, verse 13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Notice how God answers. He says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You. All right, so let's stop there. I want you to make a couple of observations with me. Number one, the, the angel of Yahweh appears to Moses and he speaks to Moses. Okay, so uh, the point I'm making here is that Moses does not just hear this voice speaking out of the sky. Moses, Moses. Moses instead he hears and sees a supernatural sight, namely the angel of Yahweh in the midst of the bush. Okay. Secondly, the text makes clear that the angel is the one speaking to Moses from the bush. Nevertheless, the passage also identifies Yahweh God as the speaker in verse 4. Indeed, the speaker identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in verse 6. Later in the passage, he identifies himself as I am who I am, Yahweh's official name. Thirdly, verse 5, the angel directs Moses to assume a posture of worship. Take the sandals from off your feet, for the place wherein you stand is holy ground. And then finally, verses 7 through 12, the angel assures Moses He's fully aware of the afflictions of Israel, and he's committed to deliver Israel from their bondage so that they can come and freely worship him on that mountain. All right? Now, this passage presents readers with some important information about God that is really remarkable. It tells us that God can appear in the form of an angel to reveal himself and his intentions to his people. Think about that for a minute. God actually not just spoke to Moses, but appeared to Moses in the form of the angel of Yahweh and gave directions to him. Now, I want to pause here and just say something to clarify in our minds what the term angel means. When you and I think of angel, 
we think of that term sometimes in terms of specifying a species or genus of, of being, a supernatural being, a heavenly being, right? And I will say that in the Bible, it usually refers to that. However, the term angel is more of a function term, like fireman or policeman or even pastor, okay? It refers to somebody who does something or somebody who has been sent to represent another person and to deliver a message, okay? He's a messenger. In fact, some versions actually translate the word. Sometimes the Hebrew word malach or the Greek word angelos, which is from where we get our term angel, they translate it messenger sometimes, all right? Um, so it normally speaks about or is used for supernatural beings. Sometimes, though, people, humans, are called angeloi, that is, messengers, all right? Um, but then sometimes it's used to refer to an entity that's even over and above the other supernatural heavenly beings, as we're going to see. So, here... God appears to Moses in the form of an angel. But this is not the only time he does this. Okay, So I want you to turn to Exodus 14 now. And we see, once again, this appearance of the angel as God is leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 14, let's look at verse 19. Okay, So he's brought the Israelites up to camp next to the Red Sea. The Egyptians have surrounded the Israelites and put their backs against the sea. So the people cry to Moses. Moses prays to God. You can see all of this in verses 1 through 14. God, in turn, commands Moses to stretch out his staff over the water, and and then God parts the Red Sea, verses 15 through 18. All right, now notice verse 19. Then... The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host, that is the army of Egypt, and the host, the congregation of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one, that is without one host, coming near the other. All right, and then skip down to verse 30, or actually uh, verse 24, excuse me. And in the morning, uh, in the morning watch, Yahweh, or the Lord, in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And we'll stop our reading there. Again, let's make some observations. This text identifies the angel of Yahweh as the divinely appointed agent who is leading Israel out of the land of Egypt, and he's leading them to Mount Sinai. All right? Um, It also connects the angel with the pillar of cloud and fire, very clearly. Secondly, the passage, which, by the way, that's relevant because the pillar... Uh, of cloud and fire accompanied the Israelites where? Throughout the wilderness, okay? The passage also identifies the angel as Yahweh himself who judges the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, verses 24 and 25. And that's relevant because later on, uh, Miriam's going to sing that song in Exodus chapter 15 celebrating that it was Yahweh who judged the Israelites in the Red Sea. And so that leads to my third observation. It seems that the angel is identified as God on the one hand, and yet, in some sense, distinct from God, because he's called the angel of God, which is another word for the messenger from God, the messenger sent by God to represent God. Let's now turn to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23. God has delivered the Israelite nation out of Egypt by this time. He's brought them to Mount Sinai, and he's made a covenant with him by the time we get to Exodus 23. 
He's now preparing them to enter the land of Canaan, and he wants to assure them that he's going to protect them along the way, and he's going to successfully bring them into the land. So with that in view, notice how he says this in Exodus chapter 23, beginning at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you, cannot, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I, will, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, I will blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Then skip over to verse 30. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall not make a covenant with their gods, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, I will surely be a snare to you. Okay, so let's make some more observations. And again, young people, make sure your parents are taking notes, okay? Because you might ask them some of these questions. First of all, notice the angel of Yahweh not only is going to deliver the Israelites from Egypt, but he's going to guide them in the wilderness and settle them in Canaan. Secondly, the angel will not give the Israelites victory over the Canaanites all in one year, but will expel them little by little. That's verse 30. Thirdly, the angel has ascribed qualities and attributes that normally are reserved for God. That is remarkable. His voice must be obeyed, and he is the one who forgives sin. Did you see that? Verses 21 through 22. Now remember... The Pharisees got bent out of shape when Jesus himself said to a man who came to him uh, wanting to be healed, son, your sins are forgiven. And what did they say? This man blasphemes. Who can forgive but God? And you know what? They were right. They were wrong about who Jesus was. They were right theologically that God is the one ultimately who can forgive. And yet here in this text... Apparently, God's angel is the one who can pardon transgression. Why? God says, for my name is in him. That's absolutely remarkable. Because in the Old Testament, we find in many passages, God's name is often equivalent to his person, his being. It's as if God is saying, I have put myself in the angel. It's also worth noting that God's expectations that the Israelites obey the angel occurs in a context in which he's telling them, don't follow false gods. That's remarkable, because if the angel were simply a creature, why would God tell them to be devoted to him, to follow his instructions, to obey him, and that he has the power to forgive sin? Well, we could look at many other passages. There are more texts in Exodus. There's passages in, in, in Numbers, for example, where the angel of Yahweh appears. But I want us to fast forward to Judges chapter 5. Okay? Judges 5. This is going to bring us to the conquest. So Israel has left Sinai. They've wandered in the wilderness. And as many of you know, it took them 40 years because of their unbelief and their sin, but they finally come to the, to the promised land, and they're about to enter. They're about to begin their conquest, and here they are preparing to go up against the city of Jericho under the leadership of Joshua, all right? And so just before this great battle, we read verse 13 of, of Joshua chapter 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? 
And the man said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What is this passage telling us? Well, uh, some of you may be saying, now, wait a minute, Dr. Gonzalez. Uh, it tells us in this case that it was a man. It doesn't use the terminology angel or angel of Yahweh. Well, that's true, but I would argue that this is a reference to the angel of Yahweh for several reasons. All right, first of all, God has already said he would lead his people into Canaan and help them to conquer the land with the help of the messenger of Yahweh. Number two, angels are sometimes referred to as men in the Bible. How many of you remember that? Remember the angels who came to visit Abraham and they're described as men. Uh, or those angels that went into Sodom to deliver Lot, described as men or Later on, we read about, remember, Jacob is wrestling with a man. All right, you say, well, how do you know that was the angel? Because later on, the prophet Hosea says, Jacob was wrestling with the angel of Yahweh. Okay? Um, moreover, it seems uh, unlikely that an ordinary man would refer to himself as the commander of the Lord's army. All right, that's a pretty high title. Uh, more importantly, what about Joshua? What does he think about this man? Well, what's he do? He falls down and he does what? He worships him. Can't be an ordinary man. Must be something more. In fact, what's more important is that the, or the man, the commander, doesn't discourage or dissuade Joshua. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 get up, get up, I'm just a man. What's he do? This is remarkable, folks. He takes the same language the angel used when Moses was before the burning bush, and he applies it to Joshua, and he says, I want you to take the sandals off your feet because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Why is it holy ground? Because Joshua is in the presence of God, the angel of the Lord. Just as another aside, the passage describes him as with his sword drawn. Did you notice that? Guess what? That very same language is applied to the angel of Yahweh back in Numbers 22 where he appears before Balaam the prophet with his sword drawn. It's also applied later on to the angel of Yahweh at the threshing floor of Aruna before David with his sword drawn. Okay? That's remarkable. Folks, I'm telling you, there are all these connections that, that sometimes we just don't see. My point is that the angel of Yahweh is appearing throughout redemptive history in the Old Testament. And it's not just an ordinary angel. He's identified oftentimes as God. Now, let me turn you to one more passage, this time in the book of Judges, chapter 2, and we'll bring our survey to a close. Judges, chapter 2. All right, so Israel by this time has won uh, many battles. She's settled the land. You can read about this in the book of Joshua. Um, however, according to Judges chapter 1, she's not followed through her commitment completely to Yahweh. So she kind of, Israel fell short. She stopped that conquest. And Israel began to sort of tolerate the Canaanites, live with the Canaanites, and even began to pick up some of the Canaanite practices. And so God comes to confront the Israelites for their sin and to warn them of their consequences, which is what he does here in Judges 2. However, just as he's done in the past, God comes to them in the form of the angel. Verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt... And I brought you to the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But, the angel says, 
You have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall become a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of the place Bokim, which in Hebrew means weeping ones. Um, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. All right, let's once again make some observations from this text. Note that the angel of Yahweh takes credit for delivering Israel from Egypt and leading them through the wilderness into the promised land. So if somebody says, who was it who led Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land? You can say the angel of Yahweh. All right. You already know where I'm going, don't you, with this? Secondly, the angel claims to have made a covenant with their fathers to give them the land. Now, I don't think he's just talking about the covenant with the Israelites on Sinai. That's certainly part of what he's talking about, but I think he's going all the way back further to the covenant the, the angel had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've already alluded to the fact that he appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You, you remember not just the account uh, in Genesis 18 where the three visitors appear to Abraham, but later on when Abraham's sacrificing Isaac on Mount Moriah and he's about to plunge the knife, he hears a voice from whom? The angel of the Lord. Abraham, Abraham, don't kill your son. Now I know that you fear Yahweh because you've not spared your only son. That was the angel of Yahweh who said that. The angel also appears to Jacob in a dream, Genesis chapter 28. And then later on in Genesis 34, he appears to him physically in, in, uh, in Bethel. In Genesis 32, I think I said to you the the, the, the case where you have the man wrestling with Jacob is actually another occasion where the angel of the Lord appears to Jacob. And Jacob even names the place uh, a name that signifies that he had seen God face to face, and yet his life had been spared. Okay? In fact, this is an interesting quote from the very end of Jacob's life. Uh, I, I don't know if you are familiar with this verse. This is Genesis 48, verses 15 through 16. Um, and it's, it's, Jacob is very old, and he's blessing the sons, his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons of Joseph. Okay? And re remember, Jacob does that thing where he, he crosses his hands over. Now, Joseph doesn't like that, but Joseph should have known better because God had been doing that all the time, right? Uh, and, and here's what he says. It says he blessed Joseph, and he said, now listen to this. This language is remarkable. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, then what's he say? The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. He identifies God clearly with the angel of Yahweh who has redeemed him. All right? Back to our text, Judges 2. Uh, the angel rebukes the Israelites for not obeying his command to drive the Canaanites out of the land. In verse 3, the angel threatens to judge the Israelites for their disobedience and unfaithfulness. And then fifthly, the, uh, the Israelites mourn their disobedience. They seek to appease the angel by offering sacrifices to Yahweh in verse 5. Now, I want to just summarize some points, observations uh, from our survey, okay? And then I want to bring this to sort of a close with some applications. All right, number one, the angel often appears in the form of a man. He's technically not a son of Adam in that sense. He's not a human, but he is a man, okay? And yet the angel claims divine authority. He exhibits attributes of divinity. He performs divine actions. He accepts worship that's only appropriate for God. The angel speaks for God as a messenger, and in that sense, we can say he's distinct from God, and yet the angel is identified as God. Let me illustrate. Suppose you lived in California in the early part of the 19th century. 
And during this time, there was some vigilante running around who was rescuing exploited people from the hands of wicked officials and wicked law enforcement people, all right? And uh, imagine that all the eyewitness reports of this vigilante claimed that he wore a black mask with a black cape. And uh, at the scene of every uh, incident, there was this Z, uh, you know, slashed into the person's shirt or put on a note or whatever. Um, if I asked you who fits that profile, you would answer Zorro, okay, also known as Don Diego de la Vega, all right? Um, now, if we're trying to find one character in the Bible who best fits the profile of the angel of Yahweh, tell me who it is. Jesus, the Son of God, okay? Jesus Christ is equal with the Father, but he's distinct from the Father, all right? So he is God, but he's also sent from God. You ever wonder why is he called the Word? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and yet the Word was God. And the Word did what? Became flesh and dwelled among us. Folks, there's not much of a huge difference between Word of God and messenger from God. All right? Jesus is the mediator between God and man. That's why John Calvin says this, the ancient teachers of the church have rightly understood the eternal Son of God is called the angel in respect to his office as mediator, which he figuratively bore from the beginning, although he really took it upon himself only at his incarnation. And if you're still not certain... I would just encourage you to look at the words of Malachi chapter 3. All right, this is right before the dawning of the New Testament era. It's the closing of the Old Testament story. And the prophet Malachi is looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he gives us Yahweh's promise. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Who is that according to the New Testament writers? That's John the Baptist. Okay? But now notice this. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And, and, and the ESV translates it and, but really you could translate it even. Because we, we have something of an appositional phrase here. A, a, a further identifier of who this Lord is. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Guess who that is? Do you know that the Hebrew term for messenger right there is the same term elsewhere translated throughout the Old Testament as angel, malach. Okay, in the Greek, it's angelos. All right? This, folks, is the angel of the covenant. He will suddenly come into his temple. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears, for he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And you know that when John the Baptist comes and announces Christ on the scene, he says that his threshing fork is with him. And he's going to baptize with the Spirit and with fire. All right? So, let me ask you. Is Jude right I know that's an unfair question because you say, well, of course. I mean, he's an inspired writer of Scripture. But, folks, I want to suggest to you that Jesus is the correct reading of, of, Jude, of Jude verse 5 because Jude understood Jesus wasn't just in the Old Testament prophecies, although that's wonderful. Jesus is not just seen in those types and patterns of the Old Testament. That's wonderful, too. But that Jesus was physically present, temporally present, with the Israelites, delivering them out of Egypt, guiding them through the wilderness, and bringing them into the promised land. So next time you read your Old Testament, you don't have to feel homesick. You might have to look a little bit more carefully, and hopefully I've given you some clues to help you a little bit this morning, but Jesus is there. He's with his people. And I want to just, in closing, highlight two practical applications 
All right, really they're sort of related. But uh, how many of you have seen the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind? All right, you, you probably thought I was going to reference that because of the title of my sermon, Close Encounters of the Messianic Kind. Um, uh, and, and so some of you haven't seen it, especially you young people. That's kind of a classic, so you know maybe at some point you can see it. But basically, the, the theme or the storyline is that these aliens visit Earth, okay, and they, they, they manifest themselves to certain individuals, and they really try to focus upon certain people that they have selected. Okay, you can call them the chosen ones if you want. And during this encounter, uh, the humans, they, they see the spaceships, but they don't see the aliens themselves. All right. Nevertheless, the aliens plant within their minds this sort of mountain-shaped image. All right. Um, by the way, they also give out a sound. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. And, and, and the humans record that, and then they play it back and emit it out into space, and then, then a, a, some, some coordinates come, longitude and latitude coordinates, that, that lead the humans to this specific mountain in Wyoming. That's the place where there's going to be a rendezvous between the aliens and the humans. Okay? But the aliens really want the chosen ones to go there, so they've implanted this image in their minds of this mountain. Okay? And so Roy, one of the main characters, you know, he's, he's shaving one morning, and he puts shaving cream into his hand, and he starts looking at it, and he, and he starts forming it into this certain kind of a mountain shape, and he, and he doesn't know why, why is he intrigued by this. And later on, he's, he's eating with his family, and he, he starts putting mashed potatoes in his plate, and, and, he, and he takes his fork, and he starts forming this mountain. Of course, they don't know what's going on. You know, what's daddy doing? And later on, he makes one in his, in his house. There's another woman in the story, Julian. She's a painter, and she keeps painting this, this uniquely shaped mountain. Well, eventually, the day comes where they both see it on TV, and it's this mountain in Wyoming. It's called Devil's Tower. Not, not, not a great name for it, but that just happens to be the mountain. Well, this is where the aliens are going to meet them, and this is where all of these various people who've had this vision of the aliens, this experience, this close encounter, and have this image in their mind, they're all drawn to this place, and they come from all over the place to try to get to have this, this actual meeting and encounter with the aliens. You may be scratching your head saying, you know, what in the world does that just have to do with our study? Well, here's what I want to suggest, okay, by rough analogy. What God has done, friends, in all of these messianic revelations in the Old Testament is he's planting in the minds of his people this shape, this shape of Jesus, this shape of the gospel, of Calvary even, okay? And so as, as you and I see the angel of Yahweh in the, the Old Testament, we're seeing the shape, and, and our minds are being conditioned so that when we come to the New Testament and we see the Lord Jesus Christ as God, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we see Him hanging upon the cross, it's not like a, a brand new religion. No. It's the very thing the prophets foretold. It's the very thing that the types and patterns were, were foreshadowing indeed. It's the very reality to which all of those personal appearances of the, of the angel were pointing us to. And one of the wonderful things the angel of Yahweh teaches us is this, folks. God didn't just give his people a promise. God says, I'm going to hand deliver that promise myself. God condescends to communicate with us. I remember when my wife and I got married uh, in South Carolina, the, the president of the university came. He had bought us a gift, and he wanted to give it to us. But rather than sending it in the mail or rather than just sending it by, you know, one of his assistants, he and his wife came to our wedding and then they stood in line and the line was a really big, long line. So they probably had to wait 30 or 40 minutes to greet us. Well, we finally greeted him and he he hand delivered the present to us. That was encouraging. I thought to myself, wow, this is 5000 people in this university and they're thinking about us. Well, dear friend, God thinks about his people. God wants to be personally involved. So God doesn't just send a message by the prophets. God says, I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to come down in person to deliver that message. 
Not only that, this underscores the personal nature of God's work of salvation. All right, we often speak of God's transcendence, in which he's wholly other, and then we speak of his imminence, in which he is among us. And that highlights what the Bible would refer to, or theologians would refer to, as God's condescension. Okay? Um, in one sense, God is outside time and space. He's outside the story. He's kind of like the, to use a, a movie analogy again, God is like the, the producer, the scriptwriter, and the director. Okay? He's not in the story. He's outside the story, but he's crafted that story. He's planned it. He's designed it. He guides it along the way. And, and God takes pleasure in the overall uh, f- plot of that great story. Okay? But as in the case with modern directors and scriptwriters and so on, God decides to cast himself as one of the actors. In fact, it turns out God is the main character. He enters time and space, not just at the incarnation. I mean, that's the crescendo, but all the way back in the very early pages of Old Testament revelation. God says, I'm going to get personally involved. And when God is in that story, God weeps with those who weep. God gets angry at those who sin against him. God avenges those who wrong him. God saves and delivers those who call upon him. And again, the supreme revelation of that is God coming in the person of Jesus Christ, taking human form, no longer just a man but a son of Adam, and dying on the cross to save his people from their sin. And I want to leave you with this question this morning. Is Jesus your personal Savior? You, maybe you've heard that before. You know, uh, Christians don't just like to say, is Jesus your Savior? Is he your personal Savior? Why do we say that? We say that because of what we just seen. God personally comes and reveals himself. God personally comes to save his people from their sin. And God desires this morning very personally to be your Lord and your Savior. And the Bible tells us that if we call upon the name of the Lord, believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, we'll be saved. And that God can become our personal Lord and our personal Savior from sin. I hope that you've gathered that from this revelation in God's word. And I hope that maybe I've set you on a trajectory in your your study of the Old Testament to look for more references to Jesus' personal appearance in the Old Testament scriptures. Close encounters of the messianic time.